I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing the kind of anticipated adaptation of the novel Ready Player One by Steven Spielberg, the latest from Tyler Perry, starring Taraji P. Henson, Acrimony, and the uh, I hopeful end of the trilogy that is God's Not Dead, A Light in the Darkness. Let's get started. Welcome to the Rebellion, Wade. I only came here to escape, but I found something much bigger than just myself. Are you willing to fight? Help us save the Oasis. I have to admit, I never read the book. I initially heard good things, but leading up to the movie... Uh, there have been a lot more people reading the book and discovering it's it's a lot more problematic than initially uh, detailed. Like as more like it, I think the first time I heard good things about Ready Player One, it was mostly by nerdy white guys. And as more people began to read the book uh, that I follow, people like um, Lindsay Ellis, I think, read it. Uh, Dominic Smith, the Dom, read it. Uh, I think. Hot in the Shadows read it. Redis, Laurent Redis read it uh, for, a, for a video. And as more people began to look into it and read the book, they began to realize, wow, this is, I mean, aside from the full-on just reference after reference, just constant stream of gatekeeping, ref- gatekeeping for 70s and 80s pop culture ephemera, it was an ultimately problematic story to begin with. And it all stems from its lead protagonist. And so people were a lot pretty, uh, pretty uh, trepidatious when it came to uh, a film being based on that particular novel. And I, ha- I was always of the mindset, if anybody's going to try and make this happen and be at least decent, it was probably going to be someone like Spielberg. Somebody who had a hand in that initial um, pop culture uh, of, that, of the time period. And somebody who was able to tap into nostalgia and still tell a decent story. I mean, he, that's always kind of been part and parcel of Spielberg's style is he would, he would tap into a nostalgia of a time period, be it the 40s uh, pulp stories like Alan Quartermain for Indiana Jones to his own childhood growing up in things like E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He had always had this mindset of, bringing, you know, calling back to a nostalgic time period. And, I mean, heck, he just recently talked about the 70s again with the Post. So, I mean, if anybody was probably going to do this all right, it was going to be Spielberg, honestly. I don't know, unless you got somebody who's like a wunderkind nowadays that nobody's ever heard of. But if somebody of the mainstream Hollywood directors out there that could make this movie, the one that would be most watchable is probably Spielberg. And so, yeah, that's kind of what it is. It is watchable. Um, I'll say this. The good thing that happened is they emphasized the parts of the story that worked. The oasis. They emphasized the oasis. They emphasized the quest. Um, that being said, uh, you know, and of course they emphasized the magical aspect of this universe. And the references 
are kind of there are bits where they where they are ham fisted, but at the same time, most of the references are Easter eggs themselves in the background. Like, oh, here there goes by like in during the race sequence, there's a Batmobile from the '60s, and you know they're, they're during they're during that initial chase, the, the initial race, it's. King, the final boss is King Kong, and then there's uh, the the T Rex from Jurassic Park. Um, I think the term there's a reference to the Terminator. There's the Iron Giant. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that not only emphasizes seventies and eighties, but it all you know goes into the nineties with things like Jurassic Park, and uh, and even before then with things like King Kong. So I mean, it's pop culture ephemera. That exists within the world the same way things like VR chat, where people make references to anime characters or video game characters, or they portray somebody they recognize, you know, and they and they role play or something like that. That's that's kind of what the Oasis is basically a sanitized version of VR chat because in the real world, in actual reality, the people uh, the Oasis would be filled with things like Ugandan knuckles. Let's be honest, and. So that part about the movie worked. What didn't work? Uh, pretty much everything else. <laughs> like, as much as people are praising the CGI in this, a lot of it is chaotic. Like, we're talking Transformers level of having no clue what's going on on screen because the because the CGI is so chaotic. The acting sequences are pretty bad, all things considered. Like, Spielberg is usually decent in portraying a CGI uh, action sequence for the most part. Like, I think back to the BFG, his last special effects movie, and he, that was perfectly watchable. It's a solid film. But this is like, uh, unless you've got, unless, you know, if your eyes are anywhere le- anywhere less than 2020, you probably won't have any idea what's going on on screen. It's so chaotic during the action sequences. It, and when it's slowed down and you can actually see what's going on, it's fine. During the action sequences, like during the cha- during the race and during the final battle, I had no idea what was going on. It was so jumbled and chaotic that there was no way for me to 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 determine what all was going on. And I feel like there was a better way of mapping out these battle sequences so that people could tell what was going on and still see that it was kind of chaotic. Um. There is definitely, you know, once again, this stems from the source material, the reliance on references to other media. Um, From the fact that the guy, I mean, the fighting the DeLorean throughout the movie is, I get that because it's basically VR chat. That's the kind of stuff you do in a a setting like that when you have those possibilities. But just the whole thing, like the book was written by a guy who acts like his days of pop culture are the best thing to have ever happened. And he makes it all about that being the determining factor of basically the world somehow. Like, they they really don't... They really Spielberg does a terrible job of building the world around this video game. Like, it doesn't make any sense that people would be playing it at work. That people would be... That how, did the, how does the world economy go on when people are all playing this game all the time? So... I think that's a problem of him trying to stay true to the novel, which itself is poorly thought out in its execution. Or maybe he's trying to avoid certain aspects of the novel, and in doing so has left a hole in explaining how this universe works. 
But yeah, like the idea that, oh, here's this thing. Like there's a whole, like during the final battle, they call out, oh no, it's Mecha Godzilla. And it's like, yeah, dude, we all get that. We, it's not a, it's not the Kiryu design. It's not the original um, Showa design. But we get that it's supposed to be Mecha Godzilla. We get the reference. You know what they didn't need to do? Oh no, a Boglin bo- bomb. Because there's a whole there's a Boglin reference in here. Then of course, oh, is that the holy hand grenade of Antioch? Oh god, just all of the all of the nonsense stuff with the references. Like we get it. We get that. We get what you're doing. You're co- by. You don't need to call it out. You know, oh, I'll just grab one of these, and you can tell it's the Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch. You don't need to say, did you get a Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch? Why? You don't need to do that. God. Chill out, you nerd. I love pop culture's nerdy stuff, and I'm the one calling you out. You need to chill, dude. You obviously can't, you can't, and the people can't have regular conversations without divulging into um, weird pop culture ephemera, even about the fake character that doesn't exist, played by Mark Rylance. I, and people have, I know I'm double-toasted, make the uh, assumption that maybe Ernest Klein, uh, you know, that Ernest Klein may be on the spectrum. If this is anything like his novel, I wouldn't, that I would question that myself, or he may just be, you know, socially inept, because because this is not how people talk, you know? And, of course, the last thing I'll say is the acting really isn't that good. I mean, uh, looking at the cast list for this, we've got... Uh, I know Ty Sheridan's in it. Ty Sheridan is uh, best known for Mud. He was one of the kids in Mud. And he is... He, is, he has been cast... As uh, Scott Summers in um, the in the in the in the prequel X Men series, so he's going to play that again later this year with Dark Phoenix. But he was uh, Scott Summers Cyclops in Apocalypse. Here, he looks all, he looks way too much like Miles Teller to be uh, to be comfortable with. Because I'll tell you this much: I still can't stand Miles Teller. I think he's such a raging douchebag of a per, of a character in everything he's in. I have yet to see a likable performance out of Miles Teller. And I don't I don't want to say it's him cuz I doubt it's him. I think it's just his character type is just raging douchebag. And Ty Sheridan unfortunately came off as very much in line with, uh, like, if this was made a few years back, it probably would have been played by Miles Teller. Um, Olivia Cook, who is best known for, I think, uh, she was in We. Oh God, she was in Ouija. Meryl and the G- Dying Girl. So that really that low budget sci fi movie, The Signal. Uh, she's been on the TV show Vanity Fair and Bates Motel, and she was just in Thoroughbreds as well. So she's not, she hasn't broken, I think this will probably break her more mainstream uh, where she plays Artemis. But even her, like, her as this character, Samantha, is so under, is so just underutilized. Like, uh, they try to pull the, you won't like me when you see me. And then when you see her, it's just a birthmark. Like, 
I get that people with birthmarks may have image um, problems, but Olivia Cook has a slight birthmark that kind of makes her look like an exaggerated version of Scar from The Lion King. Whereas most people with birthmarks would have them over their body or maybe cover more of their face. You know, there are people with much bigger birthmarks than, than Samantha in this. Like, if, maybe if they made her look more like the birthmark took over, took over more of her face, that, that took over more of her body and her face, that would make more sense that she is more body conscious. But, oh no, she has a, she has a slight birthmark across her eye. That is, then yet, oh no, she's, it's like, it, it's like that movie Beastly that came out that was like a CW version of the Beauty and the Beast, where Alex Pettifer is like, don't look at me, I'm hideous with all of my tribal tattoos. No, dude, get over yourself. I think that's the problem is that they should, if the, if the, if the thing was she was conscious, you know, she was very body conscious about the way she looked. Give her, give her something that is more reasonably something that you would consider, you know, something that people would point out. Like, she has one birthmark. Do something with that. Or if it's not a birthmark, make it like an actual, like, scarring across her face where she looks like the Phantom of the Opera or Two-Face, you know? Give her something like that. Give her something where we can understand the body image. But, oh no, you got some, like, schmutz on your face, honey. Here, let me get... Here, let me get that. You got some schmutz right there, babe. Yeah. So, you, you lost me there. Um, ben Mendelsohn uh, plays the bad guy, and he's just a mustache-twirling villain. T.J. Miller is in this as a as what was in the book, a full-on, like, racist, homophobic troll that's been downplayed into, like, a comedic role. And he's fine. Uh, Mark Rylance is really just... He's only good when he is the CG model. Like, I think they were trying to go for somebody on the spectrum for Halliday in the movie. But compared to the, his last couple of movies, Dunkirk, Bridge of Spies, BFG, he is terrible in this movie. Like, Spielberg has worked with this guy. He's get, gotten great performances out of this guy. Why is he so bad in this movie? <laughs> you know? What the hell? And uh, Simon Pegg is unrecognizable to me. I did not recognize him. He put on a lot of weight. He put on some age makeup that made him look... They made him look more like, um... I think, uh, who is it? Michael Sheen was who I thought it was. Uh, not Michael Shannon, Michael Sheen. Yeah, that's who I thought it was. I thought uh, Simon Pegg in this movie was Michael Sheen, who is um, who was uh, David Frost and Frost Nixon and Dr. William Masters on Masters of Sex. Uh, he is... Aziraphale and Good Omens, and he was uh, just in Passengers and Nocturnal Animals. You'd recognize him if you saw him. Um, he kind of looks like, he and Simon Pegg kind of look related, like they could be like cousins or something. So Simon Pegg in this, I did not recognize in the slightest. I thought he was Michael Sheen the whole time, but he, he does all right uh, with his American accent for the most part. Um... The other, the other characters, like Lena Waithe plays H, uh, Philip Zhao plays Show, and Win Morisaki plays Daito. They they do all right. Like you don't really like they don't really break the mold or anything. In fact, uh, Philip Zhao is kind of too kind of too hammy and cheesy to be a uh, you know he's he's very kid actory when he talks. Um, 
Hannah John Kamen uh, looked... Once again, there's another person who I thought was somebody else. I thought Hannah, Hannah John Kamen was um, one of my favorite actresses working right now who I've completely forgotten the name of. Uh, uh, she is a, I think, somewhat French name. Uh, um, Sophia Butella. That's it. Um, I thought she was Sophia, Sophia Butella the whole time. But apparently she is also in Tomb Raider. She was just in Tomb Raider, and she's going to be one of the villains in Ant-Man and the Wasp. So she's get, she's kind of um, coming out into her own. Uh, she, I don't recognize her in any of these things, like The Tunnel, Happy Valley, The Hour. I think these are all... Oh, Misfits. So yeah, she's, she's a British actress. Uh, she looked exactly like Sofia Putella to me. I thought that was Sofia Putella the whole time. Um, and yeah, but yeah, like none of them really do great. Like Lena Waithe is solid when she's playing H, but when it's revealed, when it's revealed who H is, uh, at the, you know, during the course of the movie, she's not exactly like brilliant or anything. And I don't, re- I don't remember her from anything. I don't know if I remember her from something else. Uh, didn't see the Chai. Uh, didn't see Dear White. She produced Dear White People and she wrote the Chai and she also wrote on Masters of None. Neat. Uh, what is she as an actress? She played in an episode of Transparent, The Comeback, and she's been on Masters of None. Okay, so this is her first major film appearance, and she's mainly a writer. But yeah, like, I think Lena Waithe could be better, and I just think the material limited everybody. Uh, overall, this 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 movie wasn't terrible, but it's very limiting uh a bad source material made for an okay movie thanks mainly to spielberg knowing how to make a solid movie out of damn near anything so i really want to do like a deep dive of of covering directors that i've never and filling out their filmography and thinking and planning out what's best and what's worst i i think i'd want to make that like a patreon thing or something but uh i'll keep i'll i'll let you i'll make that announcement when uh when that becomes a reality (laughs) Uh, so yeah, Ready Player One. Honestly, if you're going to see it at all, see it on the big screen. Pro- probably not in 3D. The 3D, I don't think, helped at all with the uh, chaos of of what was going on. But yeah, it's it's fine. You know, like it it really isn't. All, I think it's probably the best you're going to get out of that source material, from what I've heard. Maybe he did mean what he said. Maybe the deceit isn't what you think. Oh no, I don't think so. I want to offer you prayer. I would save my prayers for the wedding day. Continuing downhill, we go from a Spielberg adaptation of a very controversial and problematic novel to Tyler Perry. And... Tyler Perry is not somebody that I am a fan of. He is he is not competent enough of a storyteller or a filmmaker to make me respect him. And the only re- the only thing people make me seem to respect him for is making money. Like we got to respect him as a businessman, meaning we got to respect he made money. But Ron Popeil made money. Like any idiot who knows how to who knows how to bank on a bank on people's giving them their money can can be can be profitable you know that's not 
making money is not a big deal if you know how to do it. So, I mean, like, yeah, I don't... But that's the thing. Tyler Perry is not a strictly film producer. We're not talking about a guy like uh, like the Weinstein brothers or a... Um, or the old like Metro Goldwyn Mayer guys, people who funded the movie making but were not responsible for movie making. Tyler Perry is a filmmaker first and foremost. If he wanted to be taken seriously as a businessman, he should focus on simply producing and allow artists to actually make the work. Because he's not going to be taken seriously as a businessman as long as he keeps making really low quality art. That's the whole thing. He's, he, as long as he continues to make put, push out the same product, we don't have to. Re- I don't have to respect him as a businessman because he's not just a businessman. He is supposedly an artist, and he is a commercial art. And even though as a commercial artist, he is still not putting out quality product. You know, it's like saying, "Oh, you got to respect McDonald for making money," but no, you, I can criticize their food all I want, and you should. You should expect more from something that you consume. Um. Yeah, anyway, this time around, he's essentially tried to make uh, Fatal Attraction from the point of view of Glenn Close's character. Well, actually, no. It's not, that's not quite it. Uh, it. It's definitely going for something like Fatal Attraction. But imagine instead in Fatal Attraction if Ann Archer was the one who began stalking and, going, and, and assaulting... Uh, Michael Douglas throughout the whole movie, and it wasn't Glenn Close. Like, imagine if all of Glenn Close's actions were done by uh, Ann Archer in the movie. That would be th- that would be this movie in a, in a nutshell, because we are dealing with a woman who feels scorned. And during the trailer, I thought, okay, well, maybe they'll give us a reason why she feels scorned. What is it about? Taraji P. Henson's character during the course of the movie that makes her feel scorned. You know what it is? Her husband succeeded, her ex-husband succeeded without her and, and, and she gave up on him right before her success and then she feels she's owed money as an investment in his livelihood. Except she didn't bring about his success. If anything... She was detrimental to his success, and she held him back. See, that's the problem with this movie, is that it wants to paint Taraji... I don't know if it wants to paint Taraji P. Henson as in the right, because if that's the case, it is. it couldn't be more off base, and they made her out to be, from the get-go, a crazy person. They made her out to be crazy from the get-go. Like, the minute we are introduced to her, she is off-putting, and she is uh, standoffish, and she is, like, snarky and snide and condescending. And then, like, the only thing we've ever seen out out of her husband to make him a bad person was one time he cheated on her. They don't even explain... The where's and why's and how's of, of what happened. It's just he cheated on her one time. Ended up rekindling a relationship with that person he cheated on. We don't know how those two met. We don't know wh- why he tried to hook up with her while, they were da- while, while, she was dat- while he was dating Taraji P. Henson. And it's like, okay, 
We get it. He is very he he is so absorbed and obsessive about his creation that he neglects those around him. And he is he can't do both. He can't both support his passion project, this this self-recharging battery and also hold a hold a job down. Like he can't do one thing during the day, come back home, work on the battery for a couple hours at night. Like he has poor. So basically, his his biggest problem is that he has poor time management skills. That's really it. And like they, and the whole movie, Tarashi P. Henson is trying to paint him off as the bad guy for really nothing. Like there's like he like he comments that that she took her, her she took her family side over him and didn't support him. When he when he was being called out, but at the same time she can't stand her family either. So, like, what is this character? This character makes no damn sense. Like, is she a tight knit family woman who goes with her family over everything else, or does she really care about this guy and support him? She's just all wishy washy and flip floppy until she feels scorned out of nowhere, and then she just goes psycho for no reason. This movie did not lay out a reason for Taraji P Henson. To go full on uh, Lorena Bobbitt slash Glenn Close from Fatal Attraction, it, it just happens. It just happens because oh well, I got it from I get it from my daddy. He had he had a mean streak a mile wide, or God knows what. <sighs> yeah, it just there is no reason for this character to act the way she does, other than oh you know. Bitches be crazy, am I right? <sighs> this is why I can't take Tyler Perry seriously. Because he makes stuff like this. He makes a movie where you could genuinely deal with mental health. Where you could genuinely deal with anger issues. Where you could genuinely deal with women feeling scorned by the ones they love. All you had to do was make the husband... A terrible person. They made him out to be a damn saint. It's this weird self-imposed infraction against her her pride. And she was so embarrassed. I don't know how many times Taraji P. Henson said she was embarrassed in this movie. You were embarrassed because you're an asshole, lady. Get over yourself. This movie just... That's why I don't understand. If the point was for us to root for Taraji P. Henson and her righteous fury, they made her out to be a te- the, the antagonist. If the point was she was supposed to be the antagonist, this was supposed to be like a supervillain uh, fall from grace story, it's terribly written and makes no damn sense. If you wanted a fall from grace story, if you wanted the story of a woman giving in to her own inhibitions and going full on obsessive crazy then give us a reason for that give us a reason for like she got 10 million dollars out of the guy and all she wants she said she's owed a million she got 10 times what she felt she was owed for supporting him for debt for 18 years this is the kind of crap we're dealing with in a Tyler Perry movie this is what this is like you watch the trailer and this is what you were given this is what Tyler Perry has given to you this this salty, melodramatic. It's like it's like he made a ham and cheese casserole 
and overloaded it with salt and vinegar. And it's like, here, ham and cheese with plenty of salt and vinegar. Eat it up. And no, I want something better. If you're going to make something like this, you need to make it more competently. You jerk. You need to make, if you want to be taken seriously as a filmmaker, you need to make better films. You need to learn from your mistakes. So the only reason, the only way he's ever going to make a difference is to stop making, is for people to stop supporting his garbage. But he's cultivated such an audience that there's no reason for him to. And until that audience gives up on him, there's no re, there's no reason for him to change. So yeah. Overall, this is, I, I will say this is not the worst Tyler Perry I've ever seen. Um, confession, Confessions of a Marriage Counselor, the one where everybody gets AIDS and, and stuff, that's, that was worse than this. His, the last few Medea movies are just completely unwatchable. But as a revenge fantasy or a character study, it fails on every level. So yeah, you don't need to, if you want a bad movie to, to, drunk, drink, to get drunk watch, you know, to drunk watch with your buddies and make fun of, you can check this out. But otherwise, you can just skip it all together. I can barely hear you anymore. Are you even there? Because I feel so lost, God. To follow the example of Jesus, because without grace is our goal. We're just, you know, we're just fighting. save the worst for last that's right god's not dead he was never alive uh this series this series has always been awful i think i covered the sequel did the, what, did the sequel make one of my worst lists let me check 2016 worst of 26 i think that's when the last one came out norma the north god's not dead yeah that's the last so I've talked about God's Not Dead 2 before, and I mentioned God's Not Dead, the original, in uh, my hundred, uh, my hundredth episode, uh, where I look back at my previous lists. And yeah, God, this whole series has been a cons- white conservative Christian fantasy film from the get-go. Like, you think fantasy... You normally think, oh, elves and dwarves and mystical races and magic and sorcery and, you know, and and magical realms away from something away from reality. For Christians, the fantasy is that they are once again being persecuted and they are no longer the dominant force in the society again. You know, that seems to be the case because that's all that's all this movie has been. It's like, don't. Don't white American Christians have it so awful? Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, no. I live in the real world, and I live in a world where there I can't, where I can throw a stone and hit a church within a mile of where I where I live. I'm with I'm within walking distance of a church right now. Churches are freaking everywhere. They still dictate most of the power. There's an entire party dedicated to placating to conservative Christianity. You are not, this is a fantasy to think that Christians are somehow the ones being persecuted. When they, hold, when they have 
political power in the form of a major party. The party cares for them, coddles them, gives into their every whim because they because they have been placated to by this party. This party has embraced them full on and allows for them to achieve political power. And yet they're the ones being persecuted with an entire political party catering to their every whim? No. No, no. You don't get to say that you're the ones being persecuted. Atheists don't even have the entire Democratic Party behind them. The Democrats are too divided because they'd much rather maintain some semblance of political power than actually cater to one group over another. And in fact, the groups they do try to cater to aren't even united on all fronts. So yeah, conservative white Christians have their own political party. They aren't the ones being persecuted. Anyway, yeah, just... And of course, this whole series has delved into Pastor Dave... What is it? Manning? Harris? What do they call this asshole? He's played by the actual direct writer-director, um, David A.R. White. And... I forget, what what's his character's name? Dave Hill. Whatever. Because, uh, of course, he had to name the char- the main character based on him after himself. The one he plays, everyone has to call, to hi- I'll call him Pastor Dave. Or Reverend Dave. So, this is the kind... Everyone, so, the character played by him, that was created by him, where it's all about him, is... It, 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 it has to have his name attached to it. Because, you know, God forbid he'd be called by anything else. But this whole series has been about this, pa- this pastor, this reverend, just being awful, awful, awful at his job. Like, in order to maintain his tax-exempt status, he is asked to turn in his sermons to the IRS, which is legally what they are required to do. There is no question that churches, like, as much as churches want to say, why do I got to submit my sermons to the IRS? It's because you get tax exempt status. This is so you don't have to pay taxes. This is this is literally all you have to do to not pay taxes. And you're complaining? This is your complaint that you have to do this in order to maintain your tax exempt status? This is your persecution? That you're that you, all you have to do is submit your sermons to the IRS in order to qualify for tax exempt status? And this is that you have a problem with this? <sighs> But beyond that, David A.R. White as Dave Hill is basically a, 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 a you know an avatar of who David A.R. White is, which is a pompous, self-righteous douchebag. Dave Hill in this entire in this, in this entire series has had to be told, "Hey, asshole, you serve a religion of love. How about you preach that?" And this movie. Su- takes him from being in the background to being in the foreground and the whole movie the whole nearly two hours of this movie is about telling david hill hey asshole you serve a god of love why don't you show that how come you don't act like that then he's like what does a god talk to me anymore maybe because he sees you're an asshole Yo, why can't I hear your voice anymore? I yeah, it's like the guy who dies on the roof during the flood. It's like, God, why didn't you save me? I sent you a boat, I sent you a helicopter, I sent you I sent you every chance to get the hell out, you asshole. You dumbass. 
Uh, so yeah, that's David Hill. David Hill is the asshole who dives on the roof during the flood expecting God to save him. And God's like, I gave you the black preacher telling you to get over yourself. I gave you the people saying, hey, why don't you... God's, God's supposed to be a God of love and light. How come you don't preach that? And you, meanwhile, you're like, wait a minute, why is everybody against me? How come I have to turn the other cheek? Actual line from this movie tells a black preacher that why does he have to turn... Why do Christians have to turn the other cheek? Because it's in the doctrine of your savior, you freaking dumbass. It is literally the one thing he taught you to love and serve the Lord and to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. To turn the other cheek when you are attacked. This, that is literally what your God tells you if you can't recognize that as the way and the word you are a terrible pastor yeah that that's kind of that's kind of it like i'm an atheist i am an avowed athe- i'm an open atheist and i and I, I even i even i can tell when this guy is a terrible Christian. Because even within the movie, the other Christians around him are telling him, Hey, asshole, the way, in the, the way of the Lord, love thy neighbor, turn the other cheek. And he's like, why do I have to turn the other cheek? You And he, and he complains like, maybe if you were the one being attacked to the black preacher, and the black preacher's like, I am a black preacher in the deep south. I could build a church with the bricks thrown through my window. Oh my god, I loved that moment. And I wish that happened all the time. I wish everyone was just out there bitch-slapping David A.R. White saying, Hey, asshole, get over yourself. (laughs) So yeah, this movie, but uh, the plot of this movie... Uh, doesn't have anything to do with the stinger of the last movie where he's uh, arrested for not turning over his sermons to the IRS. In fact, that the whole thing is forgotten. That whole thing is just completely let go. Now it's more about, does the church have any place in society anymore? Why is there a church on a public campus? Because there are churches on every public campus. I go, I am with, I am right down, I am, I am right down the highway from the University of Akron. On the campus of the University of Akron, there was a chapel in order for the religious students of the university of this public university to attend services, if they so if they so chose, as well as serve the other community around the campus. On my campus, while I was while, while my university while the University of Mountain Union is associated with the Methodist uh, with the Methodist Church, they had a non-denominational chapel that held religious services for whatever the students needs were and they could be held and so they would hold baptist services uh, catholic services uh you know methodist services the chaplain of my university was trained in most ways of uh of uh, most sects of 
uh, Christianity, as well as I think even some other uh, other religions, she's able to uh, preach and to attend and to and to host services for. That's that's a thing, and and that's the thing. And mine was a private institution. I'm assuming it's probably the same on most public institutions. Most public institutions have a chapel somewhere where students, be it religious or just spiritual, can attend and either meditate or pray or attend services. That's a thing open to all campuses. Campuses are Public campuses are not some communist idea of religion isn't allowed. They teach classes on religion in most colleges. These people never went to college! Or else they would know these things! Oh, that's the best part. Being raised Catholic, I I could tell the Catholic iconography that they were trying to do. Like, the church's name is St. Jude's. And, the, and, the, and uh, David Ayer White's brother, played by John Corbett from Sex and the City, comes over and finds his old confirmation certificate. So they're supposed to be Catholic. Yet at no point do any of his services ever look like Catholic masses. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Even there's a funeral service for one of the characters in the movie who dies early on. And that funeral service could literally be any denomination of Christianity. I assumed it it may have been Baptist because it had a gospel choir behind it. But I genuinely do not know what sect of Christianity that was because they never define these things. Christianity is just one entity in this universe. There are no separate sects of it. It is all one denomination. This is the fantasy that they've created. Christianity is one entity. There are no separate sects. There are no other governing bodies. And it has no power in the world at large. It has gained no political power no matter what. This has been a, this is some alternate reality where Christians never gained political power in the United States. This is the kind of fantasy, this is how far they have to go in their fantasy to attain martyrdom status in in America. Cuz if you go to like you talk to most black Christians, they if it, they will receive death threats they, their churches have been targeted. We just saw a black church get targeted by a shooter within the last couple of years. And it's the white Christians that are being persecuted? The white Christians in America are the ones who, have, who are being attacked in this country. You see why I, can't, why I don't like this series. You see what's wrong with it. You see why, why I'm always... You see why I'm having such issues with it. It's the complete tone deafness of it all. And even when it's being called out on that, it dismisses all of the criticism, all of the legitimate criticisms being held, being hurtled at them because you're just persecuting me. Why are you always attacking me? Why do I have to turn the other cheek just because Christ said so? And of course, it ultimately leads up to David Ayer White's giving in and essentially turning the other cheek. The thing he should have done for the first place! <sighs> and saying, we need to stop yelling. 
telling a group of protesters to, that we need to stop yelling and we need to start listening. You assholes haven't listened to a single word we've said. Or you would have realized just how hypocritical you are for demanding that we listen to each other when you refuse to even listen to us. Don't you come at me with your talk of we need to listen to each other when we have been calling you out for decades on all the terrible things you have done, that your institutions have done, that you continue to do. And yet your argument is freedom of speech. We, are, we, are, we should be allowed to practice our faith, no matter who it hurts. Not all sects of Christianity are like this. There are, there are, there are a growing number of sects that are trying to, uh, to lead by a better example. I will, I will not act like Chris, this movie does, that Christianity is a singular entity. And it all is, it, it is all the same. No. It is a broken religion. It is broken into multiple sects that have v- widely different viewpoints, although uh, some more liberal than others, some more conservative than others. But the one thing, the one thing that Christianity should do is listen. And they don't. And the, and the institutions at large don't listen. We're expecting a, a uh, documentary about Pope Francis within, the, within this year. Everyone touts Pope Francis as one of the greatest popes. Even, even non-Catholics approve this pope. He is, he is so liberal. He is so non-judgmental. He is so Christ-like. And yet, when it comes down to some of the more heinous things the church has done... Pope Francis won't budge. He won't. He re, he can say, "Oh, gays can gays and atheists can get into heaven." That's so graceful of you that you thought thought we cared that we get into your idea of heaven. How about you tell your churches to stop persecuting, get you know, gays and the LGBT community at large? How about you tell your church to give over and denounce those who have use their position of power as a means for their own sexual deviancy. How about instead of protecting those people and protecting all of these, protecting your power, what remains of it, how about you give over that and reform yourself and make yourself better? Because until you make real changes, it's all lip service. You're paying lip service to being a good person, yet your institution still rots from within. The only way that can be fixed is if you actually make the changes to remove that infestation and that rot that grows within your church. Until then, don't expect people to take you seriously. Say say anything you want. It doesn't matter as long as you do nothing where it counts. Whew, that got heated. And once again, I, I try not to implicate other believers. I'm going to Easter Vigil uh, after this recording. 
and singing with my old church choir. So, I mean, it's not like I have something against religion, you know, people who practice any sort of religion. I have a problem with people being awful, be it institutions, members of that institution. If you're an awful person, then I don't, then I call you out on it and I want nothing to do with you. And Christianity has this, and there are sects of Christianity, segments of it, that see people being called out on their awfulness as being persecuted. And that's where the problem lies. People like David A.R. White and the people who run Pure Flicks, who act like they're the ones being persecuted for being pushed back when they were, when they were being pushy. And nothing's going to change as long as you don't. You can plant your feet all you want, act like you're in the right, but guess what? The further you stray from God's light, the less it's going to show in your actions. That was quite a way to end the segment. <laughs> so yeah, God's Not Dead 3. It sucks. Big shocker there. Uh, so we're going to uh, we're gonna take a quick break and come back with uh, a discussion about nostalgia. Be right back. The four of you enter a dark room lit only by two torches. In between the torches stands a robed figure in a long, with a long white beard. Greetings, travelers. The fate of the realm is in your hands. What is it that you require? Uh, well, I was just saying that I probably could use an insurance policy on the realm as a whole, because if we're the ones saving it, uh, I, I may be getting a chance to cash that in. You know, I was just wondering, um, how intelligent can some of these creatures be before it gets weird if I eat them? Pit DM would be really nice. Oh, I guess it's my turn. Damn it. <laughs> no, keep that yeah, use that one. Join our bumbling protagonists as they try not to die, and maybe save the world in the process. Welcome to Tragic Missile. Uh, release of Ready Player One, uh, I I looked back through my archives and realized I've mentioned retro stuff. I think during the Thor Ragnarok review uh, episode, I talked about like using retro styles in film, but I don't think I fully talked about nostalgia as in and of itself. And uh, I figured let's let let's do that. Um, full full disclosure. The impetus for this discussion kind of also stems from rewatching an old video by Lindsay Ellis from last year. Uh, the video is called Stranger Things, It and the Upside Down of Nostalgia. If you want a better, more in-depth discussion of nostalgia, definitely check her video out. This is more how it relates to filmmaking. And uh, uh, Lindsay breaks down the uh, three types of nostalgia. Two that were... Um, that were actually defined by uh, Svet Svetlana Boym, a, I believe, sociologist who uh, actually wrote 
who wrote the definitive uh, work on nostalgia. Let me double check Svetlana Boyim. I forgot to write. I wrote down her name, but I did not write down her uh, credentials. Design and architecture. Media artist, playwright, and novelist. So then what's her... uh, Between utopia and kitsch, memory and modernity and homesickness and the homesickness of home and the sickness of home, research interests included 20th century Russian literature. Ooh. But is is she like a... Is she just a writer or is she like a sociologist or um MA from Boston Boston University PhD from Harvard Kurt Hugo Resinger professor of Slavic and comparative literatures at Harvard graduate school of design and architecture at Harvard much of her work is focused on developing new concept of the off modern but um what's the was it nostalgia and its discontents or was it something else? No, it must have been... No, I think that's it. I think that's the actual piece she wrote about this at Lindsay Sites. Um, but yeah, Svetlana Boim uh, kind of defi- had these two... Kind of defined what what uh, media critics uh, consider the definitive uh, types of nostalgia. And then Lindsay postulates her own that I kind of accept into the... I think that's a, I think it's a very nice addition to the uh, to the two and around and it makes a nice three you know the three parts sort of thing it's a, three is a nice uh nice nice round sort of number to have like oh here are the three types of things you know and um but the first two that uh Boehm, uh defined were restorative nostalgia and reflective nostalgia uh restorative nostalgia uh recreates the past from how you remember it, omitting the more harsher realities of it. And that kind of nostalgia is defined by things like Ready Player One, like Stranger Things. It's the past, how you remember, things like Leave it to Beaver, and like uh, how Back to the Future remembers the 50s. It's, 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 it wants to recreate that feeling of, um, of home again. And in a way... Um, Amy Lindsay points this out. Uh, to let's say, make America great again. That whole that whole slogan is based around restorative nostalgia to recreate a feeling of home that you feel like you have lost, but that ultimately never existed to begin with. Uh, the next one is reflective nostalgia, which reflects the past by commenting on the time period through hindsight. A good example of this would be something like The Shape of Water. It reflects on the past while not and, and does not try to recreate the past as we remember it. Another one, another good idea would be uh, another good uh, example of this is kind of uh, Pleasantville. Would Pleasantville be, can, be the third one? Pleasantville may be more the third one. I'll get into that. I'll get into Lindsay's edition. But, you know, uh, per- a lot of period pieces that comment on the time period, they're reflective nostalgia. They're not trying to recreate a feeling of home. They're saying... Look at look at the past. We're this is us looking upon the past through the mirror of hindsight, and then Lindsay postulates a third type of nostalgia, deconstructive nostalgia, which breaks down the past and shows it and, and shows all of its parts bare. Thing she she uh, points out the Iron Giant as a deconstruction of fifties 
of the 1950s. I think Pleasantville would be another uh, another one. Not a, I don't think it's as as well thought out as the Iron Giant is as a deconstruction of the 50s, but it definitely is a tempting to do a deconstruction of those 50 of those 50s years and look upon it through modern. Lo- That's why it's somewhere between reflective nostalgia and deconstructive because I can't because the whole point is that the 50, that 50s era needs to change and modernize and progress. And that it wasn't perfect. But I don't know how much of that is reflective from a modern lens or how much of it is deconstructive, how it wants to break it down. Uh, I'd have to ask Lindsay about that. I should, probably should have asked Lindsay what she thinks. <laughs> but uh, I, I do these so uh, quickly. I, there's such a quick turnaround. I don't have a lot of time to think of these things. But, uh, but she goes more into uh, the, the uh, more ac- academic viewpoint of nostalgia and she illustrates it through stranger things and it but um i'm here to more talk about how filmmakers utilize nostalgia and how film studios do it because if you are i mean this has been a study since i think the 70s if i'm not mistaken and if not the 70s in the 80s people have been have maybe even longer people have you know academics have been well aware that people long for this feeling of home. And it's usually a 20 to 40 year cycle, which is why it's usually a 30 year cycle, which is why the eighties look back on the fifties and the, and the seventies look, but but meanwhile, also the seventies also looked at the fifties and that, but also the seventies looked at the forties in the, in the way that uh, star Wars through things like star Wars and Indiana Jones. And now we're currently looking at the eighties and nineties. So it's a 20 to 40 year, uh, there's usually a 20 to 40 year, because it usually takes that long for people who grew up in that time period to want to recreate their childhoods through their art and through the, you know, through the medium of film. And, and, I th- and one thing um, Lindsay pointed out that uh, it was, I forget which academic, I don't think it was Svetlana, but I, mean, I think it was somebody else. Uh, but somebody point, but basically she was uh, illustrating that academics have found out that it's usually not times of great tumult or change. Like people aren't reminiscing about the '60s as much because that was a time period of drastic change and you know upheaval. People were remembering the '80s, which were stagnant and stable. People are remembering the '50s, which also gave an appearance of stability. Whereas times of great upheaval and change, people don't want to reminisce on. They want to reminisce on what was, on what, on where things were calm. They want that stability. They want to feel safe. And so they remember a time period where they felt safe. Normally, their childhood. Specifically a childhood that did not have the kind of tumult and change that they had growing up. I mean, Spielberg himself has reminisced about the growing up in the 50s because... That was a fairly stable time period, all things considered. Globally, things were very unstable. Locally, people were people, unless you were dealing with uh, racial tensions in some way or another, things were fairly stable. You know, th- as long as you were in a more homogenous town and thing, and there wasn't some kind of change happening, and you weren't, and there weren't some kind of racial tensions going on. In the fifties, you most likely lived in a stable household. Which is why so many people 
are reminiscent of that time period because that's when they felt at home. That's when they felt safe and secure. 50s, 80s. And now people are looking back to the 90s as feeling safe and secure. Whereas I feel like now we're this time period will probably be remembered the same way the 1960s are. There's so much upheaval and turmoil. No one wants to reminisce about this time period because no one felt safe during this time period. And meanwhile, companies know this and will do everything in their power to exploit that. And so they'll do that by remaking old movies that you would remember from that time period. Or reselling you old uh, ephemera and memorabilia from that time period. Hey, you remember this? Here's a retro-style phone attachment that you can use with your modern-day phone. Here's a way that you can simplify your life by returning to the past while still living in the present. That's a big thing that companies love to do. And no one more so than media companies. They love to try and... And we've reached a point where people, companies know that people would much rather feel at home and know, deal with something comfortable that they recognize than try to introduce them to something new. That's why, as much as, that's why you kind of have to hand it to the people who complain, there's never anything new coming out. Well, yeah, because companies have realized that people don't want new things. People want what they recognize and what's safe whether they realize it or not. And you can give them new and challenging and differing things all you want. But the fact of the matter is, most people want what makes them feel at home. And they don't want to be challenged. And they don't, and they don't want something new and interesting. If it means, if they're given the option of something more, more homey. More something that makes them return to that safeness of being a kid again. And um, that's, but that's the thing though. Good filmmakers are able to take nostalgia and tell new things with it. And they don't have to necessarily do like Ready Player One did and say, remember this? Hey, you remember this thing? Hey, you remember this thing? That was the problem with uh, the Force Awakens as well, um, it 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 dealt it it catered so much to that original Star Wars that it recreate it all it almost acts as its own remake of the first couple of Star Wars movies. I mean that first it's like a remake in a singular movie of the first Star Wars trilogy in a sense, whereas the Last Jedi meant to progress forward and tell new stories. And want to break free from those tropes and and dive into new territories. And you saw how well that turned out. Once again, people don't like change. People are people like the feeling of being at home. They don't want to be challenged. They want if they want they want their comfort food. They want what they recognize. It's why I'm guilty of it myself. Every time I eat Chinese food, it's the same meal. Whenever I go to most restaurants, I usually try to find the same meal. People find patterns. People, people's brains want to organize patterns. And if you know you like this thing, you will get that thing again and again because you know you like it. Most people do not want to try a new thing every time. Now that I think about it, going back to Bob's Burgers last week, I actually got the cookbook for it. I think that's Bob's problem. Bob's biggest problem is he's always trying new and innovative things. 
People don't want that. I almost won an episode where Bob has to realize people don't want his new and, and, and different burgers. Like, even Teddy's like, he likes the burgers, but he's like, eh, I, I just kind of like the same thing over and over again. Until Teddy realizes that he doesn't, and then Teddy realizes over the course of the episode that like, ooh, 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 fan, fan, fan script of Bob's burgers. Fan script of Bob's burgers. I need to get on this. Um, <laughs> I'll get down to this after the episode. But, um... But yeah, like that's the whole thing is uh, people aren't interested in in change and, and trying new things every single time. They need to feel that sense of safeness, which is why progress is always so slow. You have to incorporate things into people's lives where they feel comfortable. And that's hard and it takes a lot of time. It takes a really long time. But – it can be done. And that's the whole thing of like new things can new things are built on the foundation left by the previous uh, creations. Which is the other thing, which is the one thing people who say, well, how come we don't get anything new anymore? We do get new things. They're built on the foundation of what came before it. 2001 was built on the foundations of science fiction leading up to that point. It was based on, uh, uh, what was it? Something's Universal Robots uh, by uh, Chekhov. And it's built on the idea of space. It was built on the space race. It was built around this idea of going into space. It was built on, it was ba- you know, we wouldn't have 2001 A Space Odyssey were it not for a trip to the moon or... Um, uh, what is it? Something's Universal Robots. R-U-R. That's going to bug me. Rossum's Universal Robots. That's a story I feel like you could adapt and recreate and do nowadays with, as like a TV series or something. Make it like a West... I mean, that's the, that's the one problem is that so much has been built on Rossum's Universal Robots. That, uh, okay, it wasn't Chekhov, it was Carl Chopik. That's, that's what it is. Because <laughs> they named the whole planet of robots and Futurama after him, Chopik 9. Um, but so much has been, it's like, it was the problem with why Valerian didn't work or John Carter. So much has been built on that existing already that the new stuff has superseded the original. So when you try to make the original again, all you do is make it look like a copycat of what's come afterwards. That's the, that's the and you can't avoid that. But everything new is based on something old. The old never goes away, it's just incorporated into the new. Modern music is still based around the circle of fifths in some way. You still have basic music theory incorporated into the into modern music. It may not seem like it, but it is there. Music theory can still be utilized in modern day music. Everything new is just is just is just based on something old. Trap music was based on the previous style of hip hop, which was based on going back to the seventies of hip hop. It's just a progression. It's taking what is old and saying, "Well, let me try this with it." So we're now for two thousand one. We would have never reached a point. With things like Passengers, Interstellar, um, Gravity, 
those kind of films exist now because 2001 was based on what came before it. It is an ever-elongating trail where the creators are adding new bricks every single time. And the new bricks are based on the bricks that came before it. So the lane may change colors, it may change style, but the, it's still using the same fundamental ingredients in order to continue progressing down the road. And good examples of this are things like The Shape of Water is a nostalgic twist on the creature of the Black Lagoon. Creature from the Black Creature from the Black Lagoon. This is essentially Guillermo del Toro's Creature from the Black Lagoon. How he perceives it. How he would make that. He just did not have the rights to it. If he had the, it's the same thing with Star Wars. Star Wars was George Lucas's Rod, Buck Rogers. He initially wanted to make a Buck Rogers movie, or was it? Yeah, I think it was that or Flash Gordon. He wanted to make an old 40 serial and as a new big budget movie. He couldn't get the rights, so he made up his own story. Indiana Jones is taken from the old pulp stories of things like Alan Quartermain. Pacific Rim, entirely based on tokusatsu and, and mech anime and, tech, and kaiju movies of, the, of you know, from Japan. It, it's entirely based on those things. And it takes inspiration from all of those. Thor Ragnarok and Guardians of the Galaxy. Harken back to 80s sci- retro sci-fi. Things like Tron. Things like Battle Beyond the Stars. Things that incorporate an, a specifically 80s style and flair to them. While still telling a fantastical fantasy sci-fi story. Good filmmakers are able to look at the past. Look back down the road. See what those other filmmakers inlaid and say well here let's do this next let's take those let's take those kind of bricks that they left behind and make this with them actually a road is a bad metaphor you know what it's like filmmakers are rebuilding a house they have the same materials every single time but they can incorporate some new things some new technology as time progresses so each filmmaker rebuilds the same house with the materials they are given the same fundamentals from the last person who built the house. After a while, that house is knocked down, and the next filmmaker comes, takes those materials, brings in some advancements since the last time they since the last time, and builds a new house. It's still the same fundamental building blocks, but it's something new built out of them, and nobody questions it because they don't recognize it. But when you look closely, that's the key. They're all the same. Everything new is just something old, rebuilt by what we have available to us. The old foundation blocks and the new technology. The new advancements in writing and filmmaking and everything. And that's why bad filmmakers and bad writers will use technology, will use nostalgia as a crutch. Things like Ready Player One. Or The Hobbit, or most, you know, named remakes of movies. Most people don't remake a movie because they feel like that story can be told again. They remake a studios remake a movie because once again they recognize people want something that reminds them of home, and so they'll give them this new this movie again. Hey, 
You liked this movie last time. Here it is again. Disney is doing this right now. Disney is in the process of doing this right now. Instead of telling new stories, they want to continue work, doing what works because they're business. Businesses only care about money. They aren't about doing something truly creative unless that is in their business outline. Unless it's something like an A24 where they want to utilize artists and create their own separate visions and not have the same story over and over again, then most studios are just going to try and keep people satisfied so they keep paying money. And as much as I liked The Hobbit when it first came out, I have to recognize the fact that it's just Peter Jackson tapping into people's love of The Lord of the Rings and not trying to tell a really good version of The Hobbit, just trying to recreate The Lord of the Rings. Of course, Ready Player One is so dependent on it's uh, on nostal- on the nostalgia of um, of its of of the eighties and the and the seventies that it can't tell its own story. It can't really tell its own story because all it is is just saying, "Remember this thing." Yeah, you remember this thing? Hey, remember this thing? I rem- it's like it's like talking to grandpa at the old folks home. I remember this thing. Oh, you kids, I remember this. Which also doesn't make sense in Ready Player One. I forgot to mention this during the review. But there is no reason even Mark Rylance's character would have grown up playing the Atari. Like, this, this should have been an alternate reality timeline instead of a full-on... Like, if this was him creating this system in the, in the 90s... That might have made sense. No. Mark Rylance was, would have been born around the time my nephew is. The oldest thing my nephew played is a 64. I played the Atari in, in the 90s because my grandma held on to it. There is no way his room would have looked like that in the 2000s. Don't you kid yourself. Wait, when is, when is, when is that character supposedly born? Halliday would have been born Hold on Oh they changed it from Oklahoma City to uh, Columbus for some reason Weird Not sure why that is Um He was born in 1972? What? That's what... That's... That's how they old... (sighs) Wow. Okay, so apparently he just lived for that. Apparently that... Apparently, yeah. That's... That... That... that Okay, that makes more sense then. That makes more sense. He would have been growing up in, uh, in, in the late 70s, early 80s. That makes a way. That makes way more sense. I, 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 I did not get that from the movie. I would. Have, I assumed that he was. He was at least twenty years younger than how they portray him in the than how he's. You know, how he's portrayed in the movie. So, wow. <laughs> they do a bad job of showcasing his age and his age progression in the movie by having him continually played by Mark Rylance. Like Simon Pegg, you can understand. You can make him look older. Mark Rylance will always look old no matter how young you try to make him look. So I always just assumed he was, he was, he was just always that kind of 
weird, old looking. I don't know. But yeah. So yeah, in conclusion, uh, nostalgia isn't just an inherent part of the human experience. You can't avoid it. But what artists should do is use what we know of the past to bring about something new rather than just simply playing on to it or try to recreate it, you know? You can't go home again. That's the problem with restorative nostalgia. It keeps you placated and thinking everything's fine when not everything's fine. It, it's a distraction. Restorative nostalgia is like the Matrix in that it keeps you thinking everything is fine and it keeps you forgetting from the, what the real world has to offer. I mean, we saw what happened in the campaign, sadly. People clung to this idea of of a restorative nostalgia for their past that never existed, that was a fantasy recreated by media companies. The 50s, as we know it, was a creation by the media to keep people placated during a time that is actually way more terrifying than they remember. But they don't remember the terrifying parts. They only remember how it was depicted. And how it was depicted was as sunshine and rainbows and overwhelmingly white. So that's the, ter- that's the downside of restorative nostalgia and why it can be so detrimental to people. You don't want to look in your past and always see good things because that way you never grow. You always think, well, that time was better. We should do that again. And what you need to do is look back and say, there's where things were wrong. We should fix that. That's why reflective nostalgia is way more is way more helpful and beneficial, whereas restorative nostalgia ultimately keeps you insulated from the from the real world, thinking that everything was better back then when it wasn't. This is kind of a downer of an episode. Ultimately, <laughs> I did not intend for that, but yeah, this is the thing. So yeah, and and I, that's why I want to end on a high note. Reflective nostalgia and deconstructive nostalgia are breaking down our past and looking back on it and learning from it. We can do better next time. We don't want to be stuck in a loop of saying, well, things were better back in my day. That never never ends well. So uh, let's end this episode with some good old trailer talk. Next week, we've got four new releases. One that some people saw this weekend... Uh, Blockers got a got a, apparently a limited release, the same way uh, Love Simon did, but not in my area for some reason. So, Blockers is coming out next week. It's probably the biggest release. Uh, let's check it out. Just going through the laundry, found these new thongs. You know I love it when the music stops, but come and strip that down for me. Tonight I'm tearing these off with my teeth like an old school cartoon billy goat. Yeah. Yeah. Honey, Mitch, those your daughters. <laughs> That was so telegraphed, it was painful. I'm ready. You look beautiful. I used to hold that girl in the palm of my hand. Kayla's becoming a woman. You're going to have to deal with that. Thanks. I was looking for that. God. Dad, why are you I think I'm going to miss the most important night of your young life. I don't get how these... Three parents know each other. What I, I Barinholtz is even doing here. The first night of our adult lives. I want to go to prom and lose my goddamn virginity. Prom night. It's kind of perfect. I'm in. 
Julie left her laptop open. You guys are snipping on our kids? All emojis have a secret meaning. Oh! Eggplants are dicks. This is some kind of a dick-related agreement. Maybe they're just saying, hey, you're okay with me. You're okay with me. I mean, maybe. What? Our girls are not thinking things through. I'm gonna stop them. Wow. Wow. Screw these parents. The night takes us. The night's gonna take us there. Wherever the wind sails our ships, your ship is going into my harbor. Wow, girl needs to take a hint. What would Vin Diesel do? Hey, Fast and the Furious is completely unrealistic. It's not a documentary. I get that. Yeah, screenwriter Pitch Perfect does not sell me on this. I'll do anything for my daughter. What about a chugging contest? Bring it. Not that kind of chugging. They got a lager or an IPA. It doesn't matter. God. They can't even say cock blockers. They don't even have the balls to call it cock blockers. They just call it blockers. So, uh, I am not. I genuinely am not looking forward to this. I don't get the appeal. Like it's too broad of a sex comedy to be taken seriously, and it's not funny enough to really garner my interest. I feel like it's going to be one of those like it. it it's it's outrageous, and that's why people think it'll be funny because they haven't seen like oh look it's John Cena's butt chugging. We haven't seen that. It's so it's so and, you know that outlandishness will supplant actual humor. And subversion. Hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully that's just a bad trailer. We'll see. Next up, one I've been looking forward to. A John Krasinski directed movie. I came to learn out. I came to find out. Uh, a Quiet Place. Let's check out the trailer. So I'm curious if this means it's a zombie apocalypse. Those who have survived. Live by one rule. Never make a sound. You know, people are calling out this kid for uh, playing with his toy when he knows it makes a sound. And or like saying, oh, why didn't the parents take out the batteries? You know, sometimes kids do dumb stuff. If they hear you. Some people were turned off by the fact that they actually do talk in this movie, but at the same time, they, they set it up. Like, they go down to a place that's insulated and soundproof, essentially, to talk. And then they whisper during that point, too. So, I don't have that much of a problem with it, because at some point, you do have to say something. It was from Platinum Dunes. Did not expect that. So, we'll see. Uh, 
We'll see. Uh, what, we'll see uh, how that turns out. I'm excited. I hope for good things. And hey, maybe John Krasinski will follow in Jordan Peele's footsteps and just showcase himself as a comedian who can do really good horror. We'll have to find, We'll see. Next up, Chappaquiddick. Uh, the uh, story of how Ted T- Kennedy got his assistant killed, who I think he was sleeping with at the time. Not familiar with, not as familiar with the story. I know that it happened. I'm curious to see how accurate this will be to the actual events. I hate that name. Entertainment Studios Motion Pictures. Such a terrible name for a studio. We're family. There's no more important word. We share a lifetime bond. Based on the untold... I'm surprised it took that long to be told. There's been an accident. Can't find Mary Jo. This April. What the hell happened last night? I was driving. Do you have any idea? Court of public opinion will have your head on a stake. I know that voice. Tell the truth. Beyond what you know. At least our version of it. I want you to know that every effort possible was made to save her. What do we do to help the senator? Beyond what you hear. Secrets. Those can be the difference between guilt and innocence. Are you the truth will finally surface. Maybe she didn't drown. I could have had her out of that car in 25 minutes if I got the call. But no one called. Jason Clark, Kate Mara, Ed Helms, Jim Gaffigan, and a Bruce Academy Award nominee, Bruce Dern. What's stopping you from making that choice yourself? I can't watch you do this, Ted. You watch, yo. Self-destruct. Oh my God, what have I done? Nice distortion at the end there, too. That's a great showcase of um, of of like how it's like descending into madness. I don't know if the song does that itself. I haven't listened to the full uh, Donovan song, but um, I think that's Donovan. But I haven't. Yeah, I haven't. But uh, I'm I, I, I'm interested to see how this turns out. It's the last. It was a last year release, but got delayed for some reason. You know why? I rec- you know why I recognize that voice? I knew it. It's Clancy Brown, the Kurgan himself. Um, and yeah, I'm excited for Bruce Dern. What was the last thing I saw him in? He's actually doing pretty well in his old age. Nebraska. He was in Nebraska and he was in The Hateful Eight. So he's actually been doing... Um, oh my god, he's got like nine things in post-production already. Uh, none of which I've ever heard of. So I don't know if they'll be any good or how much of them are going to be like direct-to-video or something. But yeah. Um, hey, I'm glad the guy still feels capable to keep working. But yeah, I loved him in Nebraska. Don't remember him in Hateful Eight, but I'm interested to see him here. Hey, guy's still good, and, and uh, what? Not, he was born 36, so he's pushing. He's uh, he's going to be turning 90. Uh, he already turned 80. He's he's uh, 82 already. So, dude, still got it. Good for him. Uh, and then lastly, we've got the Miracle Season. 
the one where I can't tell if it's actually a Christian movie or not, but it's from Disney. So here we go. The returning state champions. You got this. Many teams have earned two championships back to back. Or maybe it's not Disney. Caroline, you're the captain. These girls are looking at you to lead this team. I got you. This is our year, Cal. Based on the inspiring true story. What? From the director of. See, that's the part that makes me think it's a Christian movie. The Soul Surfer. Star the writer of Friday Night Lights. How's the team looking? Is that James Cromwell? No, that's, that can't be him. Win or lose, Caroline would be so proud. We gotta find us a new captain. Talk to him. Lead. Well, I need your best friend. Girls are looking at you. I'm taking her spot. And you're making it your own. The last thing that line said to me was that this was going to be our year. Even if we could win one game, shouldn't we? Why'd they call her line? Wouldn't they, wouldn't they just call her Carol? This is volleyball. I need to know if you're serious. You think this is pressure? How are you going to win if you can't even have Oh, God. Players? We are this close to doing something no one thought we could do. Playing used to be fun. We try not to think about it. If we run the board, you got a shot at state. You mean to win? For Caroline. How many is the board? Fifteen. It's time to get the This April. The improbable happened. The women of West started winning games. To, to honor the Caroline. unforgettable. We show how much we miss her, we should just play with joy. Wow, one team. We'll attempt the impossible. You strong women, win this for yourselves. The miracle season. Oh, supposed to come out the week afterwards. Huh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, um, who's the most? Helen Hunt, uh, William Hurt is the dad, is the kid's dad. That's who I thought was uh, James Cromwell, William Hurt. But wow, I can, I genuinely, I thought this was, I, I thought this initially was a Disney movie. I don't know who's making this. Who is LD Entertainment and Apex Entertainment? Damn it, IMDb Pro is making me look at, I can't look at it through unless I'm an IMDb Pro member. Hold on. Here. Anthropoid, Risen, Jackie, the Jackie O biopic, The Grey. So they, and they started with I Love You, Philip Morris. Interesting. Okay, and then what's the other one? Apex. The other one is Apex Entertainment. Um, come on, where's the? I'm just trying to find if there's a, if there is like an, 
Avex Entertainment? That can't be right. Based out of Marlboro, Massachusetts. That's Apex Entertainment Center. So, wait, hold on. Going down the rabbit hole here. Okay, so LD. Okay, so I saw it on IMDb. Uh, what is it? Apex Entertainment. See more. Elevation Films in Canada. Apex Entertainment. Miracle Season, Chappaquiddick, and Fallen. Okay, so there's nothing out, you know to outright say it's a Christian movie, but I'm getting a lot of Christian elements to it. And it's also coming out around Easter, so we'll see. Uh, I'll report back to you on that. Uh, so that about does it for this week, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, just be sure to favorite that homepage. And that way you'll be able to follow us on all, when all the new episodes come out. Or you can look for us on your various podcasting platforms. Thanks to sub, uh, uh, switching over to Libsyn. We're not only available through iTunes and Google Play, but we should also be available through Spotify and um, and your ver- and whichever ones use those. So if you're whatever podcast app you're using, look for us. If we're not there, we'll try to get on it. I know Spreaker. I was trying to get on Spreaker so I could uh, also get the podcast on iHeartRadio, but uh, Spreaker wants me to pay the money, and I don't got that kind of. I don't. I'm not. I'm not making that kind of money. So. Uh, We'll see. We'll see if I can get onto Spreaker at some point. But uh, for right now, uh, Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and then the various other podcasting apps. Whatever you use, uh, if you find us and you're listening to us, be sure to uh, give the you know rate the podcast, share it with your friends, let people know you like this show. They should check it out. And you can do so through social media. Our social media home is Facebook.com/slash Popcorn Junkie. That's where all the major announcements come out. That's when all the that's where all the big news is kept. So if you want to keep up to date on the, any changes to the podcast, anything big, uh, just uh, follow facebook.com slash popcorn junkie. And if you want, to, if you want uh, more interaction, you can join me over on Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod. There I just did a munch along for God's Not Dead 3. But you can also join me for like trailer talks and just general interaction. Follow at Corn Junkie Pod and join the conversation there. Uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm getting some more use out of it. Thanks to startup. Thanks to announcing the Stardust app, I'm still trying to think of better ways to incorporate the Instagram account. But if you want to follow me there, it's at Popcorn Junkie Podcast on Instagram. And if you want to follow me on Stardust, you can follow me at Popcorn Junkie, and you can hear my thoughts on a movie or or now the trailers before I go on the podcast. So if you want to join me there, that's just download the Stardust app and follow Popcorn Junkie. And I'm hoping to do uh, get back to streaming this weekend. 
I just need to iron out a few details, and I should be back on Sun on uh, I should be back streaming this weekend. But if you want to follow my streams, go to twitch.tv slash popcorn junkie pwh, short for popcorn junkie plays with himself. And I'll try to do Mega Man one again. We'll see if I can't uh, get a working save file on that. And uh, continue uh, Pokemon trading card game. And I want to try another Nuzlocke, but I want to see if I can't incorporate other stuffs after the uh, two failures in a row of the sweet version mod that I didn't fully understand. I feel like that needs to be a side thing where where it's not a strictly Nuzlocke challenge sort of thing. I need to better understand how the mods work. But if you want to follow me there, it's at twitch.tv slash popcornjunkiepwh. And if there's anything else you want to say to the podcast, any kind of corrections you want to give, any kind of feedback you want, uh, you think I should hear, any kind of comments, if you want to give your thoughts on the on the movie, be sure to send all of that to Popcorn Junkie P, uh, uh, Popcorn Junkie Podcast at gmail.com. And I will include them on the podcast if you would like. And if not, we can just have a conversation privately. So that's Popcorn Junkie Podcast at gmail.com. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey. And I hope you have a happy Easter weekend. April Fool! The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. Once again, there was a, it was a whole bunch of garbage before the trailer. I hate. I need to find. I need to just find the be- one trailer channel and just go to them all the time. Hold on. <laughs>